Well, if you've been with us since the beginning of September, you'll know that we have been working our way through the book of Revelation. And hopefully if you've been with us at all a little bit, you'll know that Revelation maybe is not exactly what you thought it was. Hopefully it's not quite as scary as it was to you back in September. Um, the Revelation is not this uh, secret, difficult to decipher, coded book about the future, but that Revelation is just simply what it says it is. It's an apocalypse, which just means revealing, a disclosing more than anything else of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation, I think, more than any other book in the Bible, gives a picture that is the most clear, most powerful, most realistic about who Jesus is for us and for the world even right now at this moment. And I'm going to say it, I'm going to just keep saying it every week. What we need most right now is not some prophecies about the future or not some explanations of the past, but what we need most is a clearer, bigger picture of Jesus Christ and who he is for us. And that won't necessarily change our circumstances, but it'll change our perspective on our circumstances so that we can patiently endure. So last week we were in chapter six and uh, we saw these four infamous horsemen of the apocalypse galloping their way across the earth. We, We saw that these horsemen are terrifying symbols of human sin and supernatural evil as God allows the repercussions of that sin and evil to carry out its full course on the earth. Now, if you were paying attention really carefully, you may have noticed that we read the whole section of the seals, but we skipped chapter seven. Chapter seven is a little bit unusual. I made a little slide just to kind of help you with this. You'll notice from this slide that uh, chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, is, is sandwiched right in the middle of the vision of the seals. In between the breaking of the sixth seal and the seventh seal, we suddenly have this interlude that is chapter 7. And it's kind of funny uh, because momentum is building. You know, one seal is being broken, the next seal is being broken, the next seal is being broken, and it all begins to come to this climax in the breaking of the sixth seal, and you're ready for the seventh seal, and suddenly there's this pause, like a commercial break. It just changes total, it, the scene completely changes. And it moves to, I think, what is accurately called an interlude. And why is this happening? Well, the, the first six seals have been pretty grim, pretty tough, pretty heavy. We're seeing in them the disclosing of all of the terrors of life on this earth, corruption, violence, war, injustice, death, all of this culminating in the judgment of the sixth seal. And chapter six ends with this very chilling question. You remember that? The question is, who can stand? Who can stand? And suddenly there's this interlude in chapter seven And we suddenly get an answer to that question. Who can stand? It's like John knows that our anxiety is rising. And so he he just takes a pause, puts his hand on our shoulder and says, look, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through. We're going to get to the other side. You know, when I was 12 years old, my mom and dad sat me down and they told me that we were going to move. Uh, We were living in this wonderful little idyllic suburb of Chicago where I grew up and had the most idyllic childhood. 
And they told me, you know, dad has taken a new job and it's way down in Southeast Tennessee to a place that you've never been, a place that we've never set foot. And you're gonna have to leave all of your best friends and all of the things that you love and move there and go to a different school and start middle school to a place where you have never met anyone in your life. And I was an emotional child. <laughs> and I, I, I just flipped out, you know? I, I, I panicked, I had anxiety, I was probably yelling and crying. And, and, and what I remember is my parents just, I, I just remember them sitting in front of me and I remember them saying, Corey, take a deep breath. It's gonna be okay. This is gonna be hard. It is gonna be an ordeal, but we're gonna make it through. We're gonna get through this together. And I think what John is doing here in chapter seven is a little bit like that. He's doing it as a pastor. He knows that the, 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 the news of all of the destructive powers of evil is very alarming and the distress is high and he is just putting his hand on her shoulder and saying, people of God, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna make it through. We're gonna be able to stand. All will be well. All will be well. That's chapter seven. It begins with the brutal truth. Look with me at the beginning of the chapter, verses one through three. John is, what he's doing here is he's kind of backing up and he's replaying the scene that he just told in chapter six. He's retelling the story from a different camera angle. Remember our analogy of the slow motion action replay? He's telling, he's retelling chapter six through a different lens. Instead of the four horsemen, he's using now the metaphor of the four Winds. You see that in verse one, the four winds? It's the same idea. God is about to unleash judgment by allowing the repercussions of human sin and evil to take their course. Injustice and pain and war and terror and death will make their way through every society in every human age. And the, the most fitting word to describe all of this evil and sin is the word tribulation. You can see that in verse 14, the great tribulation. Now, in John's view, the tribulation is already happening. In chapter one, verse nine, John says, I am John, your partner in the tribulation. In, in John's mind, the tribulation is not some future thing that will happen after a rapture or something like that. The tribulation is a present reality that has been underway since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The tribulation is a reality for John, it, it was a reality for the early church. It's a reality for the church of history. It's a reality for the church today. It will be a reality for the church until Jesus comes again. The tribulation is not something that happens far off one day. The tribulation is now. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Jesus himself promised it in John 16, 33. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Same word he used there that John uses here. I mean, you know this, our world is troubled. Our lives are troubled. The tribulation is happening right now. What is the tribulation? It is war and in violence. It is hunger and famine. It is political corruption and injustice. It is abandoned children and physical abuse and human trafficking. It is earthquakes and hurricanes and natural disasters. It is persecution and betrayal. It is poverty and racism and terrorism. It is divorce and environmental degradation. It is mental illness and destructive diseases and global pandemics. The tribulation is all the terrors and trials of the human experience on this earth. Earth, as God allows evil and sin to run their course, resulting ultimately in divine 
judgment. And the question that runs through all of this is this, who can stand? Who can endure this? Who can make it through all of this? And chapter seven is the answer. Chapter seven is the answer to who can stand. It is John putting his hand on her shoulder and saying, listen, people of God, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna make it through. We're gonna make it to the end. We're gonna make it to the other side. We can stand. So it's real simple today, friends. If we're gonna make it through to the other side, if we're gonna endure through the tribulation, we gotta, we gotta hold fast to two simple things. Two simple things we're gonna look at today. First of all, we gotta know who we are. And second, we gotta know whose we are. We gotta know who we are, and we gotta know whose we are. So let's look at both. First of all, knowing who we are. The most interesting thing about chapter seven of Revelation is these two distinct groups of people that John sees in heaven. And there's lots of debate and discussion about who are these groups and how do they relate and are they the same, are they different? Well, let's just look at them each in turn. So group one is in verses four through eight, and it says that this group is 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, remember, let's, let's pull out our little uh, interpretive toolkit class. Remember this? Numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic and representative. Remember, we're reading poetry. We're not reading an article from the Wall Street Journal that's describing uh, literally an event. We're not called to try to imagine literally 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel because as poetry, we're meant to ask, what's the significance of this particular number? And it turns out that it's not that tough to crack, right? 144 is 12 times 12. And every time you hear 12 in the Revelation or in the Bible, think 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles that Jesus chose to demonstrate the completion of the people of God, right? 12 times 12. A thousand is 10 times 10 times 10, and 144,000 is 12 times 12 times a thousand, right? <laughs> you kids didn't think you're going to have virtual school on, on Sunday, but here we go. Now, so the point is, the point that this is really just saying is that this is a very large number that represents completion. Completion. It is all the people of God, both the Old Testament and New Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Jesus, 12 times 12 times a thousand. Do you remember when Jesus uh, was with his disciples in one of the gospel accounts and Peter, I think, says to him, how many times should we forgive? And Peter, I think, is trying to sound like super extra pious and holy, and he says, should we forgive up to seven times? And Jesus is like, uh, no. Try sometimes 70 times. And of course, Jesus didn't mean that when you forgive someone, you should literally be tallying up the number of times you forgive them. And once you reach 490, you can stop and be bitter, right? <laughs> That's not what he meant. What Jesus means, of course, is that he just means when you forgive, don't keep track. Just keep on forgiving. That's what my people do. You just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And so the same point is being made here. This is a full, complete group. 12 times 12 times 10 would be really big. 12 times 12 times 10 by 10 would be pretty super big. And 12 times 12 times 10 by 10 times 10 is just massively big. And it's kind of like God, not just being holy, not just being holy, holy, but he is holy, holy. Holy, holy. He is holiness cubed. He is 
holy beyond comprehension. And so the point here is don't tally up the people, just be amazed at how large, how full, how beyond comprehension is the completed full number of the people of God. Okay, that's group one. Got it? Good math. Okay, group two. Verses 9 through 17. Now, at first glance, this does seem to be a different group, and there's a lot of debate about that. Let's look at that. So the first group was counted. They have a specific number. The second group, it says in verse 9, is a great multitude no one can count. The first group is made up of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's very Jewish. Whereas the second group, also verse 9, is from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now, how do we make sense of this? Is the second group different than the first group? Well, I think no, and here's why. Remember back in Revelation chapter five? Kids, I want you to do a little exercise with me here. Do you remember what happened? First, it says that John heard a voice of the elder say, kids go like this with your, with your ear. It says, John heard the voice of the elder say, look and behold the lion of Judah. And then it says that John looked, now go like this, kids go like this, looked, to see the Lion of Judah, and what did he see? Class, what did he see? A lamb. He heard about a lion, he looked and saw a lamb. And so the lesson is, of course, is that the lion was not what John expected a lion to be. The lion was a lamb. Same thing happens here. Look, he hears, kids, you can walk with me again. He hears in verse four, the number of the people of God. And then look what happens in verse nine. Behold, he looks and sees what? A great number beyond what anyone could count from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So he is not seeing a different group than was described in verses four through eight. He is just seeing the true nature of the group that he heard about. It's the same community, different lens. One of the great chapters in the Bible is Genesis chapter 12. And there God comes to Abraham and he says, Abe, though you're a nobody, though you have no kids, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And Abe's like, what? I got no kids. He said, it's going to be a miracle. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. And it's not just going to be about you and your family and your nation, but I am blessing you for a purpose. It is for the sake of the blessing of the whole world that through you and your family, that's the 12 tribes, through you and your family, all nations, tribes, languages, and peoples of the earth will be blessed. And what we see right here in verse 9 through 17 is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that international, multi-ethnic, multinational people of God standing around the throne. They are wearing white robes and waving palm branches, which are signs of victory, and they are singing to God and to the Lamb. And so what we see here, friends, is a declaration of our identity, who we are. Who are we? We and anyone and everyone who trusts in the Lamb is part of this community of Jesus. The vision shows our true identity as the beloved people of God who are anchored in the promise of Abraham, who are in continuity with the Old Testament people of Israel, who are fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus who was birthed at Pentecost in Acts 2, drawn from all nations, tribes, people, and languages. This is our new identity, this multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic people of God incorporated in and through Jesus in the new society that is the church. You are a chosen people, as Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who we are.
Now, before we move into the second point, I just want to make a couple of quick applications here to, I mean, the Bible is so amazing because it is just so relevant. We don't have to make the Bible relevant. We just have to demonstrate how relevant the Bible always is. And I just want to note the relevancy of the text here for two especially difficult things that we are all wrestling with right now, and that is race and politics. <laughs> and you might say, oh my God, preacher, please don't go there. But listen, listen, if Jesus is Lord of all, then what that means is that he is Lord of all things. And if we can't see the way that Jesus is Lord, even over the things that we are grappling the hardest with, then we are diminishing the fullness of Jesus' lordship. So look how powerfully relevant this text is to these issues that we struggle with. First of all, race and diversity in the church. You know, one of the, one of the most terrible legacies of the long history of racism in America today is the segregation of the church. Today, even though America is one of the most diverse countries on the planet, only 10% or less of the churches in America are multi-ethnic, which basically means no one ethnic group makes up more than 80% in the congregation. So only 10% or less churches in America can consider multi-ethnic. Now, why would that be? Well, one reason is just pure sociology, uh, that people just tend to choose to like to worship with people that are more like them. But there's another more sinister historical reason, and that is that years and years of racism deliberately segregated churches. So what happened is, especially for churches that, like ours that are, that are quite old, you know, more than 150 years old, is that the worship of the church and the music and the liturgy and the practices of the church were formed in the context of sinful segregation. And so what that does is it has created social environments in churches all across America of cultural homogeneity, and so that the entry barrier for a person who is of a different race or culture, the entry barrier for them to come into a church is very, very high. And what we see in Revelation 7 is a huge challenge to the segregated American church. Because what we see is that God's vision is multinational, it is multi-ethnic, it is multicultural community worshiping around Jesus. And the calling of the church on earth is to bear witness to the power of Jesus to create such a community. Revelation 7 spurs us on to get to work, you know, crossing barriers, figuring out ways how we can tear down walls that separate and divide us, understanding what divides us, and working hard to create new kinds of communities. See, it's not that people of different races or cultures need us in the majority culture to help them. We actually need them. <laughs> we need them so that we can taste the greater fullness of the vision of God for the gospel in his community. And this is hard work. It involves a lot of deep, sensitive work in cultural intelligence and awareness. Often you hear people say, you know, I don't see color, I just see people. It's sometimes what's called um, the colorblind approach. But we don't see that in Revelation 7. We don't see John say, a bunch of people were around the throne. We see him very carefully describing the different distinctions of the people, of nations and tribes and languages and cultures. The Bible is not colorblind. God is not colorblind. He created the cultures of the earth and celebrates them as reflecting his glory. And so we're not to be colorblind, but color brave. I love that phrase from Latasha Morrison. To see each other, understand, listen, see what divides us, work to build a new kind of community. 
I love this quote from John Stott. He says, cultural reconciliation, unlike assimilation, involves cultural sharing, a genuine respect and interest in difference, not cultural submergence by the dominant party over the other. The biblical vision is a many-colored fellowship which reflects the many-colored wisdom of God. So let's get to work at that, just to reflect the beauty of the vision of Revelation 7. Now, what about politics, our present political moment? Now, I don't know if you knew this, but Tuesday is election day. Um, it would be very strange if you didn't know that. And here's what I want to exhort you to, my brothers and sisters, is that as we head into Tuesday and as we go beyond it, I want you to hold very fast to the truth that your allegiance is not to primarily a political party or a political movement or even to a country or to a nation, but it is to Jesus and to that heavenly society that we see in Revelation 7. When you come to Jesus, a funny thing happens. You are suddenly incorporated into this multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural community in which you find yourself sharing a common commitment to Jesus with people who you do not necessarily look like or act like or have the same uh, convictions with or have the same political ideas. Uh, and that commonality around the person of Jesus is more important than any political position that you hold. Our primary citizenship is not American, it is heavenly. Our faith is not national, it is global. And our true ruler is not a president, it is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And America, as wonderful as the country as America is, it is not ultimate. As John Piper says, it, America in the end will just be a footnote in the annals of history, which means that American politics is not ultimate. We are free to participate in politics. We are privileged to be able to participate in an electoral system, and yet we do so as exiles, as foreigners, as citizens of another country whose ultimate allegiance is elsewhere. So let me just say this. There's, gonna be a lot of, there's been a lot of political unrest and polarization leading up to this election, and I'm pretty sure it's not gonna go away on Wednesday. In fact, uh, it might get worse. And so we have an opportunity. For, for, for us, Third Church family, we have a very wonderful opportunity as a politically purple congregation that our political diversity is a gift because we can show a watching world what happens when allegiance to Jesus transcends political divides. So on Wednesday morning, um, it will be true that for some of you, the person that you voted for, or whenever we find out who won the election, the person that you voted for may lose. Now, here's what I really want to encourage you to resist. I want you to resist the temptation to, you know, get online or get on social media or get it with like-minded friends and begin to say dramatic things like, we are now, because this other person was elected, we are going to be plunged into an abyss of terrible darkness. Friends, um, I, I know that sounds exaggerated, but I've heard people on both sides say those kinds of things. Now, here's the problem with that. As a Christian, you can be disappointed, you can be discouraged, you can be sad, you know, you can be down. But to be that disconsolate and to use that kind of dramatic, apocalyptic spiritual language is to equate the success of a particular political vision of a temporal nation state with the success and the longevity of the kingdom of God. And I'm, I'm sorry, that borders on idolatry. We're not to do that. Our, 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 our primary citizenship is to the kingdom. And also, you know, you, we might be tempted to begin um, saying really mean things about people who might have voted for the other person. 
calling them things like evil and bad. Again, we refuse to do that as God's people. We don't reduce people to their political views. We don't follow the trend of making everything political. We see one another, not through political lenses, but through the lens of the kingdom of God, not primarily as Richmonders or Americans or Republicans or Democrats or independents or libertarians, but people of the lamb, people who belong to Jesus and that new society. As Mark Dever says, before and after America, there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment. The church is an eternal certainty. And so on this All Saints Sunday, let us remember that we are part of the international multi-ethnic community, stretching through time, finding its identity in Jesus Christ. So let's hold fast to that this week as our witness, friends. I'm going to wake up on Wednesday morning. Uh, I'm going to see who won the election. Uh, I'm going to pray for him, whoever it is. And then I'm going to listen to Revelation. I'm going to read Revelation 4, 5, 6, and 7 as a reminder of what is true, of who I am in true reality. So know who you are. Second, and don't worry, this point is much shorter, okay? <laughs> we got to know who we are, but we also got to know whose we are. If we want to get through the tribulation, we got to know whose we are. There's a wonderful little play here on the word seal. You know, first of all, of course, the, the seals are being broken, which are the little seals that are affixed to the scroll, which is unleashing all the bad stuff on the earth. And the question is, who can stand? Who can make it through the breaking of the seals? And it says in verse 3 that those who are sealed can make it through the seals. Those who are sealed can endure the breaking of the seals. Do you see that? What does it mean to be sealed? Well, to be sealed was an ancient sign of possession. You know, a king would often have a signet ring, and he would mark his possessions as a sign of his ownership. And oftentimes servants or slaves would even be marked with a seal on their forehead to show people who they belonged to and who they worked for. And so it's no surprise that in verse 3 we read about those who are sealed on their foreheads and called the servants of God. That's who we are. We belong to Jesus and we are sealed. God has purchased us. We're his. As it says in Revelation 5, you were slain by your blood. You purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. As Paul says in Ephesians 1:13, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. We're sealed by God in Christ. And, or as I love, it says in Heidelberg Catechism, uh, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be sealed, to be loved by God, to be belong to God, to be claimed by God in Christ and to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We belong to the triune God forever. This is how we can stand and make it through. And what does that mean? Does that mean that God will protect us from all the trouble and trials that are talked about in Revelation? No, no. Seal does not mean to be safe, but seal does mean to be secure. There is nothing safe about belonging to Jesus. There's nothing safe about having the Holy Spirit we saw last week that those who follow the Lamb are called to suffering love, and many are called to martyrdom and death. There's nothing at all safe about following a crucified Savior. But in following Jesus, you get something better than safety. You get security, the truth that you belong to Jesus Christ forever through anything and everything that comes. My uh, grandfather, at the young age of 22, left for war. Uh, in August 1944, he was shipped out to an aircraft carrier in the Pacific, and 
He, his tour there was uh, for more than a year, and he saw terrible suffering and terrible death. Uh, my dad says he barely ever even talked about it. It was truly a tribulation. But before he left, um, his parents gave him a watch. Um, this is a, a picture of it. He actually then gave it to my dad before he died, and my dad now wears it. And my, my papo wore this watch um, every day uh, in the Pacific. He wore it on the ground, he wore it in the air, he wore it in the barracks, he wore it in battles, he wore it in the greatest perils, he wore it facing death. And for him, it was a reminder, it was a, it was a marker that he actually bore on his body, a marker of home, of family, of who he belonged to. Perhaps it was even a promise to him that he would make it to the other side. And so friends, in our tribulation, we carry a mark like that, a far better one. We carry the mark of our baptism, we carry the seal of the Spirit living in us, the sign of who we belong to and where we are heading. We, remind, we carry the sign that in our tribulation, as the horsemen gallop and the winds blow, as the earth give way, as the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we will not fear because we are sealed and we are marked. We can stand through it all because we know we belong to God the Father who loves us. We are bought with the blood of Jesus the Son and we are sealed with the sign of God the Spirit. And no matter what happens, no matter what terror or suffering or trial or horror or loss, we belong to the triune God. And one day, we will be carried right into the new creation. Where it says in verse 16 and 17, there is no hunger or thirst or scorching heat, but we will rest by springs of water and God will wipe away every tear. Do you ever doubt this? I do, quite a bit. And yet that's why we worship and why we sing and why we stay rooted in God's word and why we come to this table. Revelation 7:14 says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Again, this is a symbol. Don't try to wash your clothes in blood. It doesn't work. This is a symbol of what we are doing right here, that Jesus, who is our shepherd, is also the lamb who was slain. His body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. He covers us with forgiveness and grace. We're sealed by him forever, and he promises to hold you through the tribulation, to hold you through death, and to hold you right into the new creation. So let's come to the table remembering this, friends, that yes, we are in the tribulation. Yes, life will continue to be full of groaning and sorrow, and suffering. But we know who we are. We know who we belong to. We are part of that new community of Jesus, sealed and marked and held by him forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you and thank you for the amazing truth that we are a part of this new multinational, multicultural, multi ethnic people of God that you have gathered from every tribe and tongue and language that we are gathered around the throne of God. Help us this week, especially this week, where we just don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what kind of turmoil will occur. We don't know if there will be violence. We don't know what kind of ups and downs we will go through. And yet we are held. We are marked. We are sealed. Help us to be people who deeply root our primary citizenship and allegiance this week, not ultimately to a party or a country or an organization or a group, but that we mark our primary citizenship with Jesus and his kingdom, a kingdom that is lasting and that will endure forever. Make us fearless, make us hopeful, make us confident, make us secure. 
We belong to Jesus forever. We pray in his name.